Welcome once again. We are going to have a time of prayer, but I'm going to wait and ask some questions first, um, and we will wait until the singing calms down across the hall, too. Um, but it's nice to hear the enthusiasm. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is where we're at. We're continuing our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, so I invite you to open your Bibles there. We are in a section uh, this morning looking at 5, verse 5, and maybe into verse 6, um, and continuing a, a little series entitled Love Is. And this is our hallmark passage that is so familiar to many of us. I will read 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4, which says this, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails." Now, as we consider that passage, it is often read at weddings, it is often read just as I've read it to you this morning, beginning in verse 4, down to verse 8, the first part of verse 8. And as we think about that, I think it's important to remind ourselves that this passage is not an independent passage. It is within the context of the book of 1 Corinthians, as we've been talking about. And just to remind ourselves of the context of 1 Corinthians Chapters 1 through 3, there's a strong rebuke against the church because of their lack of unity. In chapter 4, Paul confronts them about their pride and the fact that they lacked a servant attitude. Chapters 5 and 6, he confronts them on sexual immorality and their acceptance of it. Chapter 7, he confronts them on the fact that they had a low view of marriage. Uh, Chapters 8 through 11... He has a lengthy discourse on Christian liberty and their abuse of Christian liberty. Chapter 11 as well, the wrong ideas about men and women and their roles in the church. Chapter 11 as well, great selfishness regarding the communion table was manifested. And then this section, chapters 12 through 14, is really a section on the abuse of spiritual gifts and the desire to glorify yourself with the gifts that God has given you. And so we have rebuke after rebuke after rebuke after rebuke to a a church that was filled with believers who shared in the grace of God. But as we think about this, I wanted to start out this morning by saying, what ways are we guilty of the same thing? How do we as a church or even as a fellowship group manifest some of the same attributes? How is it that we lack unity? What, What happens with us When we come to church, and how do we lack unity? What are some ways? Give me some examples. Not participating. That's exactly right. Um, (laughs) Pride? How is pride? Who said pride? Pride's the answer to everything. Yes, as far as sin goes, but how do we manifest pride when there's no unity? What does that look like? Yeah, you think about yourself, you're coming to church thinking about yourself, even like, um, uh, what am I going to get out of this today as opposed to who's going to be around me, how can I minister to them? How else? Yeah. Showing up to church, 
showing partiality, uh, trying to sit next to the cool kids, or uh, trying to avoid people. These are, these are the kind of things that we, we know these go on in our own heart. Yeah. Lack of reconciliation, lack of reconciliation after conflicts, exactly. A, a, not, a, a low view of, of forgiveness and a high view of yourself and retaliation and punishing or whatever. Yes? Hidden envy or jealousy of others, or this idea of, of uh, uh, oh, I don't want to see that person, or, or why has God gifted them with all of that, and what do I have, that sort of thing. What about um, the pride and the lack of a servant attitude that we see in chapter 4? Um, we've talked some about both of those things. What about sexual immorality? How is sexual immorality displayed in the church today? Yes. Okay, so it could be your appearance. In fact, in chapter 11, there's even wrong ideas about the appearance of women and the lack of their, somehow they were displaying a lack of a submissive attitude in the church. So, yeah, when you wear your National Organization of Women's T-shirts to church or whatever it is that shows uh, that you are... Sorry, did I just say something wrong? Um, uh, so it, it could be appearance. It could be thought life. What about a low view of marriage? How do we reflect a low view, view of marriage today? Or a wrong idea of marriage? Because it, it doesn't necessarily need to be a low view. It could be actually prizing marriage as though that's the goal of life and looking down on yourself or others because they're not married or looking down at someone because they're divorced or wanting to be divorced yourself. Or I mean, these are thoughts that go on in people's minds and we're coming to church and we have all these issues and we look at Corinth and we say, what a messed up church, and yet we're grateful because... There are so many messages that we learn from, and we look at our heart issues. Yeah, or not getting married and prizing that as though that's some sort of, uh, um, you know, something that you can look down upon others on. Um, So with all that, the reason why I bring that up is because I really believe that this section on love should be thought of and studied within the context of attitudes and behavior that is unloving. Because he pivots at the end of verse 12, now I'll show you the more excellent way. And he begins this section on love. And so I wanted to begin this morning by talking some of that and then pausing and praying and praying that our heart attitudes could reflect what they should reflect as we consider this passage. So let's pray together, and we'll pray really thinking about these issues in the church in Corinth. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and even the fact that we sometimes turn to Corinthians with somewhat of a judgmental attitude, forgive us for that. We, too, are often not concerned about unity in the body of Christ. Paul declared that he determined to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And may we come this morning with the same attitude that our focus and our heart's desire is to know nothing 
except for Jesus Christ and him crucified and his name magnified. We often promote ourselves. We often look down upon others. Forgive us for that. We are often proud. We lack a servant's attitude. Paul declared to the Corinthians that um, we often forget what we do have and that that everything we have we have received from him. And if we did not receive it, why do we boast as though we had not received it? So since everything is from you, we have no reason to boast. And so forgive us, Father, for the way we take pride in things, take pride in wealth or giftings or gifts that you have given us, talents. Father, uh, forgive us and help to keep us from the sin of sexual immorality not only those acts outwardly, but the ones in our minds, even things, times where we view and we tend to give approval to things that are offensive to you, or times when we have judgmental attitudes as though we are not capable of the same sin or guilty of equally damning sins against your name. Father, um, we come before you, we think about marriage. We know from your word from 1 Corinthians 7 that one of the goals of marriage is sanctification, that husbands should be helping their wives to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, and wives should be building up their husbands to grow spiritually And we know that we fail at that, so help us, Father, to do that. Forgive us for not being focused on building up others and sometimes having wrong attitudes even regarding marital status. Father, we know the Corinthians took advantage of Christian liberty. We know that they were often concerned more about themselves rather than others in the church, and so We think about ourselves and how our hearts are prone to idolatry and how even as Israel, after they were delivered from slavery, quickly fell into idolatry, prizing a golden calf, and we know that 3,000 of them were put to death in one day because of it in Exodus 32. We also know, Lord, that like Israel, who was involved in sexual immorality and In the book of Numbers, 23,000 of them were killed because of that. And Father, keep us from testing you. Keep us from complaining. Keep us from uh, not recognizing that every day is a day of grace, that you are slow to anger and that you are patient with us and that you you continue to um, help us and, and give grace to us and be gracious to us. We think of the wrong ideas about men and women in the church and how every Christian man has a responsibility to lead, to be a spiritual leader, not only in the home, but in the church and in society, according to 1 Corinthians 11. And that women, even in their appearance, should testify to a submissive attitude that glorifies and honors you. And that also, Lord... We think about the selfishness that's demonstrated in, that was demonstrated in Corinth regarding the communion table 
in chapter 11, and we, we often desire to be first. We often do not think of others in the body. And so, Father, as we think about spiritual gifts and the self-glorification that often we are tempted to aspire to when it comes to giftings, even giftings that you give to be used for the building up of others, we use them to lift up ourselves and forgive us for that and forgive us for looking down upon others because we know that if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. And you have placed us here this morning, just as you have desired. For those who are in Christ, we are here as your body, as your servants. And for those who don't, who are not yet have not yet submitted their lives to Christ, we pray for them that their hearts would be challenged, that they would see their sin and their need for repentance, and that you would use this. And as we consider the more excellent way, the way of contentment, a way of seeking harmony in the body of Christ, this will be a testimony to who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we think about 1 Corinthians 13, And these 15 characteristics of love or 15 practices of love. I like to call them practices of love because they are all verbs. They are all meant to be practiced. In fact, they are all present tense verbs, which actually is significant in the Greek because the present tense is the continuous tense. So it's not just that love is patient. It's not an adjective or a noun. It's not just that it's patient some of the time, but it's continuously, continuously patient. It's continuously kind. It's continuously not jealous or envious. It continuously doesn't boast, continuously does not practice pride in verse 4. It's not arrogant. Um, And the sixth practice we find, which is where we're jumping into because we've finished last week, verse 4, is love does not practice rudeness. Love does not practice rudeness. It says in verse 5, love does not act unbecomingly. Unbecomingly. It's kind of a funny way to say it. Um, but the idea that is that true love is the opposite of a rude spirit. The word here literally means unformed, and it has the idea of an, acting in a manner unfit or unbecoming for a follower of Christ. We're talking much more here than just not having table manners, which is an issue. It's, it's talking much more than not just acting like an American. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, I mean... Uh, having lived overseas for a number of years and then coming back, it's like things that I thought that, you know... I mean, I don't know what happened with not talking with food in your mouth. It, it, I mean, I, when I was growing up, that was like a, a thing that parents taught their kids, and it seems like it's changed now that it's okay to talk with food in your mouth as long as it's in your cheek. If you can fit in your cheek, you can carry on with the conversation. I don't know, but, you know... People from overseas, from civilized nations, they look, they look at us and they say, well, what's going on with Americans? And then I say to people, well, you should see Texans, because Texans are to Americans what Americans are to the rest of the world. Um, uh, and, and, and it's this idea that, you know, we, we look at manners, we look at table manners. That's not what this verse is about. When it talks about unbecomingly or unformed, this is about an attitude which directly conveys to someone else, I am better than you are, and I don't care about you. 
So when we think about rudeness, we think about this lack of care for others. And we see this evidence. And let's just turn back to 1 Corinthians 11, and I'll read 17 through 22, because it's a, it is a shocking passage. It says in verse, chapter 11, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? I, shall I praise you in this? In this, I will not praise you. And he, he's, he's talking about uh, there were those who had nothing. And evidently, from the context here, it seems as though when they practiced communion, they also had a feast together. So they would come together for a common meal. And when they came together, there were some who had nothing that were going hungry. And so it seems like those who had something, presumably those who were wealthy, those who could come early and not have to work later, they were coming and not only eating all the food before others got there, but they were drinking all the wine so that there was none for communion to the extent where they actually got drunk. And so others come to the church meeting to find a, a pagan festival type attitude and and appearance, and it was causing division in the church between the haves and the have-nots. And Paul is saying, shall I commend you for this? This was the type of attitude that was going on in the church. And rather, love doesn't do that. It doesn't practice rudeness. It doesn't act unbecomingly. That is the sixth practice of love, which goes along with the seventh. Love does not practice selfishness. Love does not practice selfishness. Verse 5, love does not seek its own. Defined here, the phrase literally means not to seek the self. And it's very similar to a phrase that we have in our society called, um, uh, I need to go find myself. I need to go seek myself. Now that sounds very noble, doesn't it? Like, give me some space. I just need to go find myself, right? Right? How many of you, okay, so uh, how many of you would say you're an extrovert? Come on, let's hear it for the extroverts. Yeah, not very extroverted. Okay, uh, how many of you would you say you're introverted, an introvert? Okay. I'm not a big fan of those terms. Uh, I'm, how many of you didn't put anything up? You're in, introverts, obviously. But, but I, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I think that I think there's a place for them. I'm not ready to rule them out. You can correct me if I'm wrong. You can talk back on this. You can raise your hand. We'll talk about this. I just think that, I just think that in today's society, we use those terms as an excuse for selfishness. You know, somebody says, well, you know, I'm an introvert, so I need alone time. I recharge when I'm alone. So I need to be away from people, so I'm leaving. And extroverts are like, well, I'm an extrovert, so I recharge around people, so I need to get all the people, whether they're introverts or not, and they need to recharge me. And I'm just saying that oftentimes we use 
that an excuse. Now, there are personality differences, but believers are not introverts or extroverts. They are converts. They have converted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They have said, I am no longer going to be lord of my life. That gets me nowhere. So I lay down my life. I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Yet not Christ, not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And so I live for the glory of Christ, which means I practice self-denial. So I'm not going to use a personality type to be an excuse for me to be selfish. Now, don't be legalistic either. If somebody says, I need to go rest. Oh, yeah, didn't you listen to Steadfast? You need to, I'm going to download this sermon. You need to be recharged. You're not a convert. You're an introvert. I, I, um, we need to be careful. But, I mean, this is basic Christianity, is it not? Matthew 6.33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you, these things that we're worried about. I think this is illustrated in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this self-seeking attitude. We see it in verses 23 and 24, if you want to turn with me there. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 23, um, this is... One of the issues that Paul was trying to deal with, this idolatry, people caring about themselves and their only desire, and they're using their freedom, their, their liberty in Christ. Some were saying, hey, you know, a meat, an idol is nothing, so if I eat meat sacrificed to idols, it's really sacrificed to nothing. And I like meat, and once it's sacrificed, you get it for cheaper, and so I have no problem eating meat because I have knowledge, and my knowledge tells me it's nothing even if it's sacrificed to an idol. Somebody else coming out of an idolatrous background sees the meat sacrificed to an idol and thinks about all the immorality that was part of their life beforehand and doesn't want to touch it, doesn't want to be associated with it. And so they're saying, no, I can't do that. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 and 24, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one's the other's well-being. And so um, he says in verse 33, just as I also to please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. So the characteristic we have of Christians is not one of self-gratification or self-glorification or building up ourselves or bringing pleasure to ourselves, but it is one of self-denial. So when you walk into a worship center and you see a third of the seats are uncomfortable and close together, you rush for them and you say, I want to sit near the two, in between the two biggest people I can find so that I'm like this and they're like this and, and I, I don't want anybody else to sit there because I want to sit there. But it also means you're not judgmental because you go in there and see steadfast people sprout on the, on the, the, the big pews that are, that are not yet being replaced or whatever. I mean, this is, this is uh, I'm just saying that, are we really thinking about self-denial? And you're like, oh, great, now I have to sit in those chairs. Or, um, I, the chairs is just a, it's just a dumb illustration. The, the root matter is what's going on in your heart. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is our example, according to Matthew 20, 28, who did not come to be served, but to serve. Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
So when it comes to putting away rude behavior or selfish behavior, that's what love does. If we want to be loving, that's what we'll do. Before we move on, any questions about those two characteristics, those two practices? All right, let's move on. So we move on to an eighth practice. Love does not practice anger. It says in verse 5, love is not provoked. So it's the opposite of an angry spirit. That word provoke in verse 5 means to arouse to anger. Turn with me for a moment to Ephesians chapter 5. Keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 13 and go over to Ephesians chapter 5, chapter 4, verse 25. Ephesians 4 Verse 25 says this. This is the section in Ephesians where Paul is telling the church in Ephesus to put off sin. And he, he uses the image almost as a garment that you put off and put on, which is great because I think it's important that when we're talking about sin and dealing with sin in your life, that you put off sinful behavior, but that you look to replace it with Righteous behavior. Do you hear cheers for that? I do. <laughs> so you put off sinful behavior, and it, you know, it, it's this idea that stop sinning is that's good. We should stop sinning, but that's only half the equation. Years ago, there was a program, Nancy Reagan, I think, started it for, against drugs, a campaign, just say no, which is only half the equation, right? Uh, if you have a pagan who, who hates God and does drugs and you get him to stop doing drugs and he still hates God, from an internal perspective, there's not much of a difference in his life. So just saying no is, is only half the equation. But what's interesting is that Paul in Ephesians 5, when he gives examples of putting off and putting on, sorry, Ephesians 4, verse 25 through 28, putting on and putting off, you would think that he would say, put off this sinful behavior and instead pray or instead read your Bibles, which, which is good. And that's what we often think of. We think of, you know, um, hey, I'm really, I'm really tempted to do this. Let me go read my Bible. Let me pray. And we know we should, but often we don't feel like doing that right away. So what he says here is he gives these practical examples of putting on behavior that is glorifying to God that is sort of the antithesis of the behavior that you are tempted with. So take a look at verse 25. He says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. In other words, if you have a problem with lying, then when you're tempted to lie, you go around and speak to others about your what is true. And you confess, hey, I have a problem with lying, but I'm coming to you and asking you to pray for me. And you know what? God has been so gracious to me and he saved me. And, and what, you know, so anything about truth, you're replacing that speech, which was deceitful, with speech that is truthful. Skip down to uh, verse 27 and do not get uh, verse 28. And he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who is need. So if your problem is klept- being a kleptomaniac, you're stealing things, um, he says, don't do that anymore. That's half the equation. But what do you, that's putting off. But what do you put on? You work, you earn money, 
you give to those who are in need, and you make that, that your practice of doing it so that when that temptation comes to steal, you're like, wait a minute, I, want, I was addicted to stealing. I want to be addicted to giving and caring for others. And then he goes on, he says in verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. And so this, this idea of edifying, building up others. If you have the, the, the habit of tearing people down, turn and, and build them up. I told the story before here about, I was teaching through this very verse to a junior high group when I was a youth pastor, and I, we grabbed this word edify, build up, because junior hires are often tearing people down. And one day I was in the church bus and I heard a kid just tearing down another kid. I said, hey, edify, that's our word, right? Edify. And the kid right behind me, Robbie Elliott's his name, he goes, yeah, edify, stupid. <laughs> so it's nice to have a kid like that backing you up. But, but the point is that you're looking at, you're looking at sinful behavior, sinful behavior, and you're trying to replace it with something that is righteous. So if, you're, if your sinful behavior is anger, which love is not easily angered, love, your love is not provoked, right? How do you get rid of your anger problem? Because I think a lot of times we don't deal with it. We don't put on something else. We, we instead just confess that that's our problem. Yeah, I, uh, I have a problem with my temper, you know, uh, I lost my temper. I, I, I'm a kind of guy, I just have, an anger, I have anger issues. As though that excuses what you do. You know, Spurgeon confronted somebody who said they lost their temper saying, it's not that you lost it is the problem. The problem is that you found it. And we don't really lose our anger. We, 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 we get angry, but how do you stop? How is it when you're on hold with your phone company for that long and you get disconnected? How is it with little things? How is it with big things? And the answer is the putting on is also found in Ephesians 5. It's a verse we skipped over there. Sorry, Ephesians 4. I keep on saying 5 because I want to get to husbands and wives. No, um, Ephesians 4, verse 26. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, there is something as a righteous anger. And so the putting on of a problem of a person who is problem with uh, provoking, being provoked or being easily angered, the putting on is to start being angry about things that don't glorify Christ. And what you'll find is your heart attitudes uh, are really more focused on self when you have anger. I, I don't know that I've ever fully experienced righteous indignation, but you start thinking about what should I be angry about. Um, you know, somebody cuts you off on the freeway. Um, you're not angry because, oh, that person did not glorify Christ and they're dri- driving. It's you. It's you. that got Somebody says something very hurtful or demeaning to you. You're angry because you're embarrassed, because you've been belittled, and because you want to be promoted. You're not angry because God has not been glorified in their behavior. But we live in a world that is not concerned with what God is glorified about. And sometimes we watch movies where we're rooting for people to go rob a bank and get away with it. 
or have an immoral relationship and get away with it, or I hope they get together. And I mean, they're not even married. And we look over those things because the world wants us to rejoice in those things, which love does not rejoice in immorality. Instead, if we want to be angry about something, be angry when we see sin flaunted before the Lord. So, love does not practice anger. We're just getting these pictures, these practices. We'll move on. Another practice that we should not do, and love does not practice grudges. Verse 5, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. So true love does the opposite of having a grudging spirit, of holding on to that bitterness and, there's that person, and I'm supposed to be mad at them. The, the New King James says, thinks no evil. But a literal translation of this section of verse 5 is, doesn't count evil. Or you might even translate, does not impute evil. It's an accounting term. Um, NIV says, love keeps no record of wrongs. I like that. It doesn't have a ledger of offenses. You know, it was Jesus in Matthew 18 when, when Peter said to him, up to how many times shall I forgive my, the, the one who sinned against me? Up, up to seven times. And the Lord says, I tell you not seven, but seven times 70, which is what? Math majors? 490, right? But 490 is difficult to count to if you don't keep a ledger of offenses, if you're not keeping a record of wrongs, if you're not counting evil, to calculate or to reckon is what this word means. Has the idea of, of yeah, remembering it. Now, in accounting, you want good records. You want to keep account of things. If you, Your finances, you know, you buy something and it breaks and you're going to go return it. You want to know, where did I buy it from? How much was it? Do I have a record of this? Have I kept or will you know? Can I prove this? Will they will they you know refund my money or you know is the warranty void? All these things we keep records like that. You know when something's wrong. I one time uh, I received a phone bill, and on my phone bill were a number of calls to Pakistan, and I was I had a record in my mind that I had never called Pakistan. And so I called my phone company patiently, and <laughs> so, but the loveless activity that Paul was confronting was displayed in, in throughout uh, Corinthians, throughout the church in Corinth. In chapter three, he confronted them on their exclusivity, and and uh, chapter seven, it was it was divorce and remarriage. It was. It was a church that kept records of all the offenses. I'm just thinking about all the relationships that are represented in this room. And I'm thinking about relationships that have turned sour or bad or people that have genuinely offended you. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't rather be wronged, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6 when it came to lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? I'm wondering if you might be able to pray this day 
Lord, let me throw out the ledger book that I've been keeping of offenses against me because I want to love. Now, that doesn't mean that you will never confront somebody because it may be the more loving thing to confront them. But you need to ask yourself, what would not, not what's better for you, not what's going to vindicate you or make you feel better. What is going to be better for this people, this person, this is the person, this person, and other people that might be affected from this person? What would be best for them? And so you, you, you're thinking about imputation, which is, which is a great word because this word that is the same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 talking about accounting no record of wrongs is used for you in Romans chapter 4 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, it says, that is God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Not imputing their trespasses, not keeping a record of your trespasses. And this is the beauty of the cross, and that is you're born a rebel against God, and your heart attitude has sinned against God way more than anybody could sin against you, and because God loves you, because God is love, and he, does not, he is not provoked, and he is patient with you. And, and therefore, when it, when it comes to the sacrifice, he made a way for his son to live a perfect life as a man here on this earth, fulfilling his commands, and thereby being your representative, a substitute on your behalf, not having to die because the wages of sin is death and he never sinned, therefore he never had to die. Yet he allowed himself to be crucified because of your sin to pay for your sin as your substitute, as a sacrifice so that you may have your sins taken out of your account, Romans chapter four, which says, blessed is the man whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Romans 4, 8, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account because it is taken out of your account and placed into Christ's account where he pays for it in full on the cross so that every sin you've ever committed in the past is paid for in full. Every sin that's in your life right now, maybe a sin you're not aware of, maybe a sin you haven't yet repented of, it's paid for in full. You will never be condemned for that sin. You will never be punished for that sin. All the sins which you have yet to commit in the future, paid for in full, if you have repented and turned and trusted in Christ, even though you may sin, it's forgiven. It's paid for. It will never be imputed back into your account. It's in Christ's account, and he has paid for it. And Christ's righteousness is taken and placed into your account so that when God sees you, he says, well, this account is fully righteous. And love is not provoked and does not take into account a wrong suffered. So we have about 10 or 15 minutes left. I want to I have, I've, we've, we've gone through a lot. 
I can go on, but I thought we would take questions. What questions do you have about things we've just talked about? Yes. Okay, so the question is about anger, and the question is, especially if you're a parent and you're angry in the moment, how do you switch to being not angry with him and still dealing with him? Is that kind of the question? So actually, it's it's a good point, because in Ephesians 4, verse 25 and 26, there are two parts to putting on. It's not only... Um, being angry about what the Lord would have you be angry about, but it's also do not let the sun go down on your wrath. So it's dealing with it quickly. And so uh, when you're angry, first of all, I mean, when kids do things uh, and you're angry, um, you need to really try to determine why you are angry. And I think oftentimes as a parent, we're tempted to be angry because he didn't listen to what I said. Or she. Could have been she, right? My daughter here somewhere. So, um, but, uh, the, so, so the question is, um, are you thinking about that correctly as you pause? And, and, of course, as parents, you should never discipline out of anger. So if that means you need to send them to their room and then come and discipline them in a few moments... But to really go to the Lord and say, why, why is this upsetting me? Why is my heart rate up? Why am I, you know? And then realize, okay, Lord, huh, this is not about me. I, but I want, I want my children to, to grow up. They say, what somebody said, uh, if, you, if you spoil your children, no, if you, if you raise your children correctly, you can spoil your grandchildren. But if you spoil your children, you'll have to raise your grandchildren. So it's this idea that, hey, I want to raise my children correctly. Why? So people look at me and say, wow, what a good parent you are. No, because ultimately you want them to fear God and know God and you want them to do what glorifies God. And so when you do discipline them, you come in and you say, this isn't because of what you've done to me. This is because you've offended God and God has placed me as an authority over you and he desires me to discipline you according to his word. And so I'm doing this on his behalf because of your offense against him. And so do you know what you did? And I would ask this question. Do you know what you did that offended Christ, that offended God? And kids are amazing. They know. They know. And you do that enough, it comes naturally to them. We had a kid in kindergarten, who had to see the head teacher, which wasn't the principal, it was kind of in between, right? And the head teacher asked my kid for his behavior, which was something he shouldn't have done, and said, why did you do that? And he looked at the head teacher and says, because my heart is sinful. (laughs) Five years old. And she started to, like, she couldn't control herself, and she, oh, that's right. She had no response. What what do you say to that? (laughs) So 
I, I, think, I think that's, those are the questions you need to ask. Just ask the kids, what have you done to offend God? I think, I think in any relationship, if you're married and you have an argument with your spouse and you are, <clears throat> whatever that means, just angry, you know? What have they done that has not brought glory to Christ's name? And how can you ask them that in love? Concerned about them, not concerned about you. I mean, this is Philippians, basic Philippians, right? Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. And so that is a guiding principle. I am going to come to this conflict thinking about them more than about myself. If it's better for me to cover it over in love, Psalm, 50, Psalm 32, love covers over transgression. If that's what it takes, I, I'll cover it over. If that's better for them. Okay, other questions? Yes? Yeah, okay, so what is the question, what is the connection between being in the word and putting on? Right, so... I am in no way saying that you should not be in the Word. I think that you know, the Word of God, 2 Timothy 3.16, right, is profitable. And so we know this. You should run to the Word of God. What I'm saying is that the Word of God tells us that we also should put on practices that replace our sinful behavior so that when you're tempted, um, you're not just saying, oh, I guess I should run to the Word of God. You should run to the Word of God. You know, I think sometimes people, you know, you need to ask yourself, what is my sin? What is the sin I'm struggling with right now? What is, what is the sin? I'm a believer. I've repented of my sin. I've given my life to Christ. If you're not a believer, you're going to struggle with sin. In fact, you're characterized by sin. In fact, you cannot not sin. Because if you're doing it other than to glorify Christ, you're not doing it with the right heart motive. And so when you are a believer, though, for the first time, you can do things to glorify Christ and his name. And so when you do things to glorify Christ, the question is, um, and, and you fail in that, and you fail in sin, and you know that Romans 6 says that no sin shall have dominion over you, which means that there is no habitual sin that you cannot be free from. If you're in Christ, you are no longer characterized by sin, and there should be no life-dominating sin. And yet sometimes we go through periods where sin crouches its ugly head again, and we feel dominated by it. So how do you escape from that? Well, prayer, the word, but also replacing that sinful behavior with something that has an opposite type of reaction. If that sin is in your mind and you're allowing your mind to dwell on things that are ungodly, then use your mind to dwell on things that are godly. I tell people, Learn an instrument. Go, go, pray, go play praise songs. Do something with your mind that's creative, that's not creating anti-God sentiment, but is creating God-glorifying sentiment. So the question is, what is the balance between Ephesians 5, putting on, putting off, and how does that relate to reading Scripture and prayer? Reading in Scripture and prayer is what we need to do. It's non-negotiable. But I love it that Paul, when he writes the Ephesians, is very practical and says, yeah, but also change your behavior to something that glorifies God. Christians are not just people who go around all day saying, ah, 
quiet, please, I'm reading, I'm praying the Bible, and I'm avoiding sin. Yes, question. Are you talking about in Ephesians 5? Sorry, Ephesians 4? What? What is going on? I won't be angry about that. Uh, And I hope my wife's not angry about that. Yeah. So Ephesians 4, as I understand it, and, and, and there at the end... He gives examples. Verse 24, he says, put on the new self. Verse uh, 23 or 20, um, 22 is put off. So that's the putting off. Verse 24 is putting on. He gives examples starting in verse 25, falsehood, that is lying. He gives the example of anger in verse 26. He gives the a- answer of stealing in verse 27. He gives the example of unwholesome speech in verse 29. And then verses 31 and 32, I believe, are just catch-all. I don't think he's trying to give exact um, parallels, but I think he's saying any attitude that is grieving the Holy Spirit, anything that bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. He's saying in general, here's the general pr- principle laid out in a number of ways. Put off what is not God-glorifying. Put on what is God-glorifying. So I think, I think those last two verses, I'm not sure that I would line up every word with every word and say this is the, the replacement for that. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 and that's why I think verse, in, in, in this, I think uh, verse 24, 26, and 27, that's a, that's a difficult one, but I really think that what he's getting at here is the opposite of sinful, selfish anger and rage is righteous indignation. And therefore, what we should put on, I mean, how many of us, let me ask you this, how many of us are angry at homosexuality? It's really not something that our society would praise us for. And it's something that our society has continued to bombard us with an attitude that this should not be angry. We should not be angry about that. And yet Romans 1 makes it clear that a society that prizes and praises homosexuality is one that God gives over. And so we should be angry, not because we hate people, but because we want them to know the truth, that it's sin, that there's forgiveness. It was one of the big shocks to me coming back to the States after being gone for 19 years was uh, I watched a video about the school system where they, they had a video promoting gay marriage and... Um, they showed the video was of kids, and they did first grade, second grade. They did all these all through high school, and they did them like a reaction to gay marriage. And they were showing all these proposals, and a guy proposing, and then they have the face. The big picture is the face of the kid, and 
I think that the uh, thing that, you know, as the, the elementary school kids are great, you know, they see a guy proposing to a guy and they go, what? That's crazy. How, do, how does that work? You know, and junior hires are like, oh, oh, that's good. And high schoolers are like, hey, that's sweet. And I saw in this video this, this you know, the society really embracing and accepting something that is offensive to God. I don't, I'm not rejoicing in iniquity. I don't want to be judgmental and say that my sin's worth, but I hate all sin. And I think it's good to be angry about it, to have a righteous anger. We've got to be careful that we're not using our own judgmental type of anger. But I think motivating us about really what upsets God is, is, a, is a way to be free from, from anger. And I've, I've counseled a lot of people who have anger issues, and they, they just explode, and just, you know, fury comes out. And when it comes down to it, it's selfishness. It's all about them. So that's why I think it's the alternative is righteous indignation. All right. Well, let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for... Um, this time together. We've covered a lot of topics, and we've we've really tried this morning to recognize that our hearts of love, which you said in John 13, by this, all men will know that we are your disciples if we love one another. Help us to love with the kind of love that you have designed for us. Let us not be wrapped up in a worldly, selfish, pseudo-love, but may we imitate Christ and may we imitate who you are by nature. So we commit this to you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.